Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the beauty of a new day, for the miracle of being able to gather together from a lot of different cities, states, and even countries via Zoom. And we pray that as we study Paul's letter to the Romans today, that you would speak a fresh word into our hearts about what it means to be your covenantal partner and to be part of your family. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Romans chapter two, Paul writes, therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine whoever you are that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but by your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for he will repay according to each one's deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. God will give eternal life while for those who are self-seeking, and who obey not the truth, but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first, and also equally the Greek. But God, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. All right, we're going to break today's passage up into two portions. And so that's portion one. And what I'll do is offer just a little bit of teaching on this passage, but I'm going to ask you to take note about what your questions are and your comments um, for when we have some more conversation. So Paul starts in chapter two, therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge. Now this might feel very ironic because those of you who were here last week, remember that we ended chapter one with a long laundry list of any sin one could possibly commit. And it felt very much like Paul was passing judgment. And so today we find out that it was all a sting. It was a setup uh, that Paul was not actually angrily passing judgment on such people as if to leave them there, but in a sense was kind of setting us up to let us know that whenever we judge others, 
we're actually condemning ourselves because one way or another, we're doing the very same things. Now, in terms of what this means, right, you might say, well, I, I, I judge someone who commits murder. I've never committed the act of murder. We go back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that anyone angry with a brother or sister has committed murder in his or her own heart. And of course, when we get down to verse 15, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. Paul talks about hard and penitent hearts, that Paul is actually really concerned about the heart. And the whole idea is that whenever we do judge others, we're overlooking the ways that we also participate in some form of the same behavior. And thus to judge another human being is to condemn ourselves because we don't see accurately. Uh, and so I'm sure we'll have some conversation about that. But one thing I do want to point out um, that Philip Turner is really good at reminding me uh, is that there is a difference between judgment and condemnation. And it's very important whenever we read Paul that we do not fuse those words. When we get to Roman 8, he'll say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what he doesn't say is that there's no judgment, right? So condemnation is when there's a guilty verdict and we're kind of cast away from the Lord's presence, condemned. But a judgment, as any judge knows, is just an accurate reading of what is. It's not necessarily the same thing as condemnation. So we're going to need to separate those out to understand Paul and his letter to the Romans. But again, he's kind of talking to Jews here who might be tempted to judge all the behavior that he listed in chapter one that was usually associated with Gentiles and pagans who knew not the Lord. And so what does he say here? Do you despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It was actually a common question in Paul's day. You know, why has God not yet returned to put the world to rights, uh, to judge the world? Why has the day of the Lord not come? And one answer that was very popular amongst many rabbis was that because God is gracious and we see that, of course, in Luke's parable of the fig tree and the vineyard in Matthew 21, I'm sorry, in Luke 13, where a man has a fig tree and he comes looking for fruit. So he says to the gardener, you know, for three years, I've been looking for fruit, so cut it down. And then there's the intercession, right? Let it alone. Uh, if it bears fruit next year, you can cut it down, but let's give it a little bit more time. And so a common understanding in the day was that God was giving us time. God was giving us time to repent and God was allowing time for people to begin behaving in ways that were pleasing to God. And so that's a reference there. Um, I think it's important to name in verse six, how attention and Pauline theology is introduced, whereby we are repaid according to our deeds, we're judged according to our works, but as we'll find out in this chapter, we are saved by faith as an act of grace. And so what does it mean to be saved by faith and judged by works? Uh, that really trips a lot of people up, but we find that tension here in verse six. And notice how he says to those who by patiently doing good seek 
glory, honor, immortality. He doesn't use the word earn, right? So you have this tension in Pauline thought whereby we are justified by faith and saved by grace, but also judged by works. Verse eight, he talks about those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth, but wickedness. The whole question of who we obey is very important for Paul, very important in scripture because this whole gospel you know, Paul says in chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation. But ultimately, this is about who we obey. Do we obey the King Jesus, right? The Lord who took the form of a slave and imitate that behavior? Or do we obey what Paul will call the flesh in later chapters? And then in verse 11, we're reminded that God shows no partiality. Now, this is important for two reasons. Number one, the larger theme of the letter is how God's righteousness or covenant faithfulness means Jew and Gentile coming together, right? We're not to be partial to the Jews, that the Gentiles are being grafted in. But also anyone who's read the Old Testament and in particular the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, whenever God kind of lays out what is the appropriate behavior for judges, there's a big emphasis on not being partial, of making objective, fair, loving judgments, of not siding with some uh, opposed to others for selfish reasons. And of course, the great revelation is that there is no such thing as a human being who judges with no partiality, but God is a just judge. God shows no partiality. And that's tied to this argument Paul's making about Jew and Gentile being grafted into the body of Christ, and about this being the revelation of God's righteousness, which again for Paul is covenant faithfulness. The question is, has God broken God's covenant? We've got these Gentiles coming in, and Paul says, no, this is actually how God's covenant faithfulness is revealed. It was always the plan. Now, if you're a Jew, that raises a question, well, what's the whole point of the law? And we're going to get more into that in chapter three, but Paul gives us a little preview here in verse 13. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous. It's those who do the law who will be justified. And there's a little bit of resonance there with the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 21, where a man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard. He said, I will not. But then he changed his mind and went. The second son said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And a lot of people think that Jesus told this parable or that Matthew told this parable as a commentary on Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and it's just a reminder that Paul says it's those who do the law who are covenant partners of God. Um, I think that's what Paul means when he says justified, if we're really sticking with the contextual meaning of the word diakesune, which means righteous or justified. And then finally, before we go into conversation, verse 15, they show that the law is written on their hearts. This is not theological innovation. Paul is going back to what the prophets in the Torah have already said. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, right? It talks about how God will circumcise the people's hearts, how we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. And Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophets talk about God changing the heart 
or inscribing God's law on our heart. And so whenever Jesus and Paul emphasize the deep importance of obedience from the heart, what they're doing is calling people back to the real meaning of the law and the prophets. This is not theological innovation. They're not changing the rules. They're basically saying God has always said it is about the heart. And they're kind of reintroducing that theme. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there and we'll see what is uh, what about this first part of Romans 2 that catches your attention. All right, Romans 2 verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you're instructed in the law, and if you're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then that teach others, will you not teach yourself? You that preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and real circumcision is a matter of the heart it is spiritual and not literal such a person receives praise not from others but from god all right so one thing just to remember contextually speaking is that paul is addressing a problem that you and i might not be as emotionally present to which is that jews and gentiles have been grafted together in one family that they're having to kind of learn to get along together, and that rather than nullifying the promise of God, that this demonstrates God's righteousness or God's faithfulness to the covenant. So just remember with all this talk about law and circumcision and all this rhetoric that Paul is addressing a very specific issue. So verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God, who is Paul talking to here? Well, is he talking to Jews? Yes, but remember, Paul is speaking to his former self. He's speaking to his old friends. This is exactly what Paul did, right? So if you read Acts of the Apostles, who was there whenever Stephen was stoned? It was Saul, uh, later to become Paul, right? Everyone laid their coats at his feet because he oversaw the stoning. And if you read Philippians and Galatians, where Paul offers a little bit of his own autobiography. Paul says, I was blameless according to the law, and I boasted, you know, from being of the tribe of Benjamin. So here, Paul is speaking to himself. He's speaking to his former friends because this is exactly what he did. 
right? This is Paul pre-conversion, now trying to bring others to a new view of what God is up to. Verse 19, so if you're sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish. So what is Paul talking about here? Is Paul talking about people who think that they are an exception to bad behavior? No, he's talking to people who are holding on to a view that the vocation of Israel, you know, the 12 tribes, was by their good behavior to be a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. So as it says in Isaiah 49, I've given you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The whole belief, right, was that by keeping the law, by obeying God's commands, the light of Israel would shine to the ends of the earth and everyone would come to know and to love God. But anyone who has read the Old Testament knows that not only did Israel not keep the law, but they were wildly rebellious, that rarely did they get it right. And so if God is going to basically use Israel to bless and save the world, what Paul is doing is laying the groundwork for how God's going to be faithful to that covenant, but to do so through Israel's representative, who is Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus is the true Israelite who will guide the blind, bring light to those in darkness, correct the foolish, et cetera, et cetera. But before Paul gets there, he basically has to deconstruct the myth of the Jews still going around who are saying, okay, if we keep the law, if we're faithful, we're going to be a guide to the blind. We're going to be a light to those in darkness. And Paul says, no, God has kept God's covenant by giving you the true Israelite who has perfectly fulfilled the law on your behalf. And so Paul has to do a little deconstructing work here to those Jews who still think that they are the answer to the world's problems in and through their obedience to the law. Verse 25, Paul talks about the law a little bit more. He says, circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Two points. But if you break the law, the point is that everyone has broken the law, right? Because Paul, like Jesus, has raised the stakes of what it means to keep the law. And he started talking about the heart. And so the whole point is that we're all transgressors. We're all lawbreakers. Now, it is true, though, that circumcision in the law is a value. But in Pauline thought, it's not because it can save you, right? So the whole idea that if we keep the law perfectly, we will be saved, that's actually never the case. To kind of go back to some of our earlier conversation, God gave the law as a gift after God saved the people. So the value of the law is not that it has the power to save you. The value of the law is found elsewhere. And we'll get into that a little bit more in chapter three. Now, I said earlier that in speaking of the heart, that Paul is not doing a lot of redefinition. But here, verse 28, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Real circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul here is really kind of walking a line. 
right? Because the whole point of being a Jew, the whole point of being of the people of Israel was that you are a physical descendant of the God of Jacob, the God of, or a physical descendant of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. It was very much uh, a physical ethnic thing. And so, for instance, to go to John chapter three, whenever Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said that because one's first birth, one's physical birth was one's ticket into the kingdom of God. One was not a Jew inwardly, but outwardly. And so here Paul is doing a little bit of redefinition in light of what God has done in Jesus Christ to bring Jew and Gentile together. But of course, the whole emphasis on the heart is not innovation. So we can have some conversation about that if you would like. And so as we go into some conversation, what Paul has done is essentially use chapters one and two to introduce the gospel, to speak to Jew and Gentile alike, to basically level the playing field uh, so that the whole um, the whole gospel of God's faithfulness to God's covenant will not be based on anything we do. It will not be based on our ethnicity, but it'll be based solely on what God has done and whether or not we have been grafted into God's family through faith, grace, and baptism. So that's kind of where Paul's going. I'm going to pause now and we'll have about 10 minutes of conversation before our time ends.